Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. This morning we'll be reading Revelation chapter 21 through chapter 22, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with a rod. 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh chastened, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, 
and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you're not there already, please turn in your Bible to Revelation 21. Once upon a time, in a land far away, this resonates deeply with us. It captivates our attention. It draws us in. Why? Because we know that we are part of a much grander narrative. We know that this story is so much bigger than what we see And most stories borrow from the one story. So how do these stories end? And they lived happily ever after. This also resonates deeply within us. We long for that happily ever after, that day of endless joy and peace. But until that day, what do we do? We try to recreate that paradise here on earth. Well, Revelation 21 and 22 is not merely the conclusion of this letter of Revelation. It's also the culmination of the story as we know it. All of history is culminating here at this point. The epic that began in the Garden of Eden with a wedding celebration will find its ever after in a new garden paradise with a wedding celebration that will never end. The breakdown of our text, this structure has three movements, and first we're going to see how the presence of God transforms all of creation. And then we'll see the presence of God permeating this wedding celebration. And finally, how the presence of God actually sustains all of creation, all of life. And so as the text has been read, we'll start in chapter 21 in verses 1 through 8. What Pastor John sees and hears is breathtaking. It's really beyond words. It's really beyond description. And what we've been witnessing all throughout our study in Revelation is that Jesus Christ is reclaiming what is rightfully his as Redeemer, as Savior, as Lord of all. And he's been doing it through signs and wonders. But it's at this point that we get the clearest picture of the king laying claim to his realm and his people. We see something similar in many fictional stories, right? Where evil overtakes a realm, and with that, 
it's pictured as darkness invading, plunging all of its subjects into this vast darkness where you sense the weight of it, you see the weight of it, you feel the weight of it, and it actually even affects creation, right? Nothing is bright and alive and vibrant. It's all decaying and dark and gloomy. But what happens when the hero finally comes in and conquers evil and restores the realm to its rightful place? Light expels the darkness. Creation begins to come alive again and thrive once more. The people rest in security and safety. Well, in our text this morning, something even better is taking place. But listen to how Romans 8 describes our current situation. Starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8 is describing the current scenario in which we live. And in Revelation 21, this hope is realized. Faith is finally transformed into sight. And the king makes an entirely new realm. What do we see in verse 1? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. New heavens, new earth. What began in garden in Genesis 1 through 3 now culminates in garden, Revelation 21 and 22. But if we consider our origins all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, what was forfeited in Genesis 3? What did we lose? What are we acutely aware of that it's not the same as it once was? You say a lot of things, absolutely. But the biggest thing, the thing that affects all other things, is the presence of God. Well, what's restored in Revelation 21? In this text, it's the presence of God. Zoom in on verse 3. Revelation 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Hit the pause button. Catch your breath and just soak in that for a second. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle, that's the word tabernacle, dwelling place, is finally with man. At last, this is what we've been waiting for, the chance to live in God's presence, the chance to be in his presence. This is what we've been waiting for, what we've been longing for, what we've been impatiently enduring for. All these passages in the New Testament that have been leading up to this point and the constant call to the believers throughout Revelation has been patiently endure. Keep waiting. It's going to happen. And now in Revelation 21, it's finally a reality. God's presence with us is everything. It's absolutely everything. So when the king restores the realm and gathers his people to himself, our reality is forever altered. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This isn't the first time we've heard this. Remember the description of the people of God back in Revelation 7? Now, we could read all of Revelation 7, but for sake of time, let's just pick a couple of verses, 15 through 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a chance for us to just, again, pause and realize the reality of this. Especially in those moments on the horizontal where we experience the trauma of pain, the emotional scarring, the weight of life on the horizontal because of sin. It's dark. We have to navigate this. And you are very much aware of the struggle. It's acute. And in those moments, whether it's a health issue, that's nagging and it won't go away, or you get that cancer call, or these relationships that we have are strained and broken. You fill in the blank, the brokenness on the horizontal. This is a chance we need to remind ourselves to go back to Revelation 21 and go and spend some time reminding ourselves of verses 3 and 4, that one day this will all change. One day, the dwelling place of God will be with us, and he will live with us. He will dwell with us, and he will be our God, and we will be his people, and he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And the agony and the pain and the sorrow that we feel will be done because death will be no more. In that day, we'll be able to catch our breath. We'll be able to rest. And it's God himself who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We long for that day. And we long for it all the more, the more acute and dark it is and seems to be here in this moment. But verse 5 tells us the king's declaration, Behold, I am making all things new. 
What a glorious declaration. A new heaven, a new earth, a new reality, new presence, everything new. We long for that day. In verses 6 through 8, with the king's declaration of victory, he decrees that all things are made new, but he also decrees something else. In verse 6, it is done. It is done. The same language was used back in chapter 16 and verse 17 when the seventh angel pours out the seventh bowl. It is done. It's go time. Now the time, it's reality. So once and forever, this will be fully realized. Now what's the basis on which this king makes the declaration? The declaration is made on who he is as Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. That's what verse 6 says. It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Where have we seen that before? If you were to flip all the way back to chapter 1, John's writing to the churches in Asia. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne and Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What he started with, he is finishing with. And he is faithful to see all of it through to the end. Remember Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. What he started, he will finish. But it's at this point in the text of chapter 21 that we see that there's two groups of people. There are clear winners and clear losers here. That's what the text says. Who are the winners? Well, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of of life, the water of life, without payment. They're the ones who conquer. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So those who thirst after the living water, those who are very much aware that they're deficient, that they need something outside of themselves, we've seen this picture, this imagery of water and life all throughout the scriptures. It's on display. Um, This is really just an echo from Isaiah 55.1 where it says, come to me all who thirst. And you actually get to buy without payment. This is the exact same language here. It's borrowing from Isaiah 55. We've seen the same thing in John 4 when Jesus has this interaction with the woman at the well, right? And he said, if you actually knew who you're talking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And so we've seen this all throughout. This is just a picture for salvation, this idea of living water. And also, it's the same picture of those who conquer. We've seen this. We're very much aware of it from Romans chapter 8, that we are more than conquerors because of Jesus Christ. Well, who is the one who's conquering? It's those who are connected to the Lamb. 
This is the very message to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And seven different times, the appeal is those who conquer will receive this. So there's very clear winners who are going to step into the presence of God, into this whole new realm, and enjoy his presence forever. But there's some very real losers as well, because not everyone will be in his presence. The losers are those who reject Jesus, the Lamb of God. The description in verse 8 is merely representative. It's not exhaustive. But this is how they are described, as cowardly, Faithless, detestable, murderer, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. And what's the end here? They won't experience the paradise with God, but instead the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is described as the second death. We've already seen that last week in chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, is thrown into the lake of fire. So at this point, when this whole realm is recreated and there's a new heaven and a new earth, there's clearly winners and losers and there will be some who will be in the presence of God. And it's those who've responded to Jesus as the lamb, but those who've rejected him will be cast out. The contrast couldn't be more polarizing. Life or death, paradise in God's presence or removed from his presence, into the lake of fire. But as we turn the corner, this next section, in verses 9 through 21, it's really quite cool because we have the presence of God permeating this wedding celebration. What was described in Revelation 19 is on full display in 21. If you listen closely, you can hear it. Ba-bum, ba-bum. It's at this point that everyone stands and turns to get a glimpse of the bride, right? The doors open, the music starts, and we're waiting to see the most glorious, radiant picture of the bride coming forth. And that's basically what John gets a glimpse of here in verse 9. John's told, you're going to get a sneak peek of the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And so John's taken to a great high mountain to get a glimpse of the bride of the Lamb. And what does he see? We're expecting to see a person. But instead, he sees what's called the New Jerusalem, a city coming down from heaven, you know, from out of heaven from God. And it's like, time out. Wait a minute. I'm expecting to see white flowing dress and beautiful bride, just radiant and glorious. Why are we seeing a city when we're anticipating a person? Well, this is a picture. Remember, there's been symbols and contrasts throughout. And so we're going to see in just a minute the contrast. But what does the text say? The text does say that the bride is glorious. Why? Because the glory of God just radiates and makes her completely captivating. She's breathtaking because God has made her so. And so while this description here appears to be describing a city, the New Jerusalem, it's actually a picture of contrasts. Remember that Revelation is full of imagery. 
It's rich with symbolism that paints a picture and it describes what's actually taking place. Well, Revelation is also a picture of contrasts. And here in 21, we have the contrast, the bride of the lamb versus what took place in Revelation 17 and 18, the great prostitute. You have the city, New Jerusalem, versus Babylon the Great. That's what's going on here, this picture. What was Babylon describing an actual city? Was the prostitute describing an actual person? Was the imagery so much bigger than our narrowed focus of what we often want to see? And so listen to the contrasts from Babylon. Revelation 17, 1. The angel says to John, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. In 21.9, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Same type of language, but completely contrasted. So in 17.3, John was brought by the Spirit into the wilderness to see the judgment of the prostitute. Here in 21.10, John was brought by the Spirit to a great high mountain to see the radiance and the glory of the bride. What's the description of the prostitute in 17, 1 through 6? Well, that she is a prostitute. She was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She has a cup full of the abominations of the impurities of her sexual immorality. All these pictures are painting just the the darkness and grotesqueness and how we should be repulsed. And on her forehead was a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And in fact, she's drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Well, in complete contrast to that description of this prostitute in this city, we have another description of the bride, the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God coming down out of heaven having the glory of God, having the radiance of a most rare jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. There's 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles. And the dimensions of this city are meant to get you to picture and see holy of holies. The most holy place, the place where God's presence Think of the building materials, jasper, pure gold, clear as crystal, every kind of jewel. So considering the imagery and the use of contrasts, the bride of the lamb is really the people of God. It's not about the city as much as it is God dwelling with his people. Now, will that place be glorious? Absolutely. I think it's going to be beyond our wildest imagination. Think about the best place that we could ever think of, how idyllic and paradise, and you picture it, and it's going to far exceed that. But it's these people who have made herself ready as the bride, Revelation 19, and was granted to clothe herself in fine linen, pure and bright. So in contrast to the great prostitute of Revelation 17 and 18, we see a radiant bride in 19 and 21. In contrast to the city of Babylon, which has become a dwelling place for demons, 
we see the new Jerusalem, which has become the dwelling place of God. And as we turn the corner from this description and we move into verse 22, this is quite possibly the most noticeable aspect of God dwelling with his people. And it's the absence of the temple. Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. And you're like, time out. All this imagery has meant to, to lead us to, you would expect temple, wouldn't you? Because you're, you're thinking tabernacle, Jerusalem, holy of holies. Wouldn't we expect to see the temple? Absolutely. But what do we see? No temple. Well, we have to remember, what's the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple was the presence of God. Well, why is there no temple? Verse 22 tells us, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So think with me back to the Garden of Eden. In the Genesis account, we understand that mankind experienced God's presence in a much different fashion than we experience it now. And it really doesn't take long for us in the storyline, it's just a few pages in this narrative, where we see that paradise is lost, that it's forfeited, this presence is forfeited. And then it's not until Exodus that we see God showing up and saying, you know what, I'm going to localize my presence with man again. And we see that in the giving of the tabernacle, where this would be this mobile reminder of the covenant relationship that they would have with God, this identity that's theirs because the presence of God is with them. And as they were on the march out of Egypt into the promised land, and as the tabernacle rested at Shiloh, it was a constant reminder of the presence of God on display. And so it would have been the city center for them, the tabernacle would be. It's a connection to the presence of God. Well, finally, a permanent structure is made, and the tabernacle exchanges for the temple, and the temple just blows the tabernacle away, right? It's built by King Solomon. David did a lot of prep work for this. But the temple was everything that the tabernacle was, yet far exceeded it. It was more glorious, more radiant, more glamorous, more ornate than anything that previously existed. And it reminded them of the presence of God in their midst. And then God does something that completely blows our mind. We have a hard time really grasping this. We take it by faith because the text says it. But this God who showed up in the garden, and now his presence is different. He tabernacles with his people, and then there's this permanent dwelling of the temple, does an amazing thing, and he sends his one and only son to earth. Remember Matthew 1, 23? And he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus identifies himself as equal with the Father. He is the Son of God. He is co-equal with the Father. And John, the same author of the Revelation, tells us this in chapter 1 of his gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. It's the same word. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right side. 
he has made him known. And later in John's gospel, Jesus is about ready to be betrayed and be crucified. And he's with his disciples in the upper room and they, they're getting ready to move to the Mount Olivet. And Philip says, Jesus, just show us the Father and that'd be enough for us, right? And Jesus is like, oh, Philip, have I been with you all this time and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Ta-da! You know, just, you've got to wrap your mind around this. Again, Jesus in the same chapter tells his followers that he's about to depart. And at the the same time, even though he's going to depart, he's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to come to them. He's going to give them another helper, the Holy Spirit. It's this presence that is going to be on further display throughout Acts, all throughout the New Testament. And it's going to be a reminder of the presence of God through the Spirit in also the gathered church. And we're going to live in this state until he finally returns and we see the culmination of this entire story. Remember Matthew's gospel where Jesus tells his disciples, his followers, that I will be with you always to the end of the age. So this section of Revelation is not only the culmination of the letter of Revelation, but it's also the culmination of the entire biblical narrative. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, new presence, new condition. In fact, all things are made new. We have the promise of paradise renewed, restored, remade, We have the promise of God's presence unlike anything that we've ever seen before. In its letters like 1 and 2 Thessalonians that remind us, that encourage us, that comfort us with the assurance of his presence. Listen to a a snippet from 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a very familiar passage, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Later in chapter 5, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we awake or asleep, whether we live or die, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Listen once more to Jesus' words from John's gospel. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, tells his disciples. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. So what we see taking place, what what John sees and hears in Revelation 21 and 22 is wonderful assurance of the reality of God's presence with his people in this remade paradise where heaven and earth are merged into one and we will always live with God's presence. But the king's glory in this place is going to sustain this realm unlike anything that we know and experience. The description as we continue in Revelation uh, 21 and following into 22, something's different. Something's majorly different. What are we completely dependent on as earth in space? We need, this is a, a planet that absolutely needs water to survive. We need the sun and the moon to survive. And yet the description is, is that we no longer need dependence on those things. And that the presence of God will be what sustains us. The rest the safety, the security of being in the presence of Jesus is pictured by the city gates remaining open continually. There's no threat. And only the ones that are allowed in are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the text says that they will bring, they will bring into it the honor, the glory and the honor of the nations, verse 26. What is the honor and the glory of the nations? It's not our wealth. It's not our power and our prestige. The honor and the glory of the nations are the people. That's been the vision of God all along. And we can see it all the way back, you know, from the beginning. It's always been about the nations and reclaiming and rescuing the nations for himself. Those who have rejected the Lamb will never enter into His presence or this new paradise. They're described as unclean, detestable, and false. But this new paradise will be beyond our wildest dreams. If you can imagine back with me all the way back to Revelation 21.4, I know it's been a few minutes, but I just want to remind us of what's taking place here. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away. With death and sorrow completely eradicated, listen to what's replaced them in the remainder of of 21 and 22. The river of the water of life. The tree of life that brings healing to the nations. No more night. The light of God's presence will continually sustain us. The throne is a reminder of the presence of God and we will see his face. You know, there's some things in life where we get all excited about it and we try to get others to be excited about it too, your favorite restaurant or this pizza place or this movie that you've seen and you talk it up so much that you oversell it and they've seen it or they've tasted it, they've been there and they're like, meh. This is not that. I cannot overstate, I cannot oversell, I cannot say enough about what we are going to experience in verse 4. Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Pastor Pat has continually reminded us 
throughout this series, throughout this study, that those who believe in Jesus, we have been sealed by God. We have the Holy Spirit. His name is on our forehead. He is our identity, and we have no fear of the mark of the beast, as if somehow we can undo what God has done. And yet, as we wrap up this study, let's consider the reality of verse 4 from an echo from Exodus. If you think with me back to Exodus, this is probably the most significant scene in Exodus unfolds at Mount Sinai. Moses is meeting with God on top of the mountain to receive the law, and down below at the base of the mountain, the whole nation is violating the law in idolatrous fashion, right? They've already broken it completely, and now he comes down, and it's like, bust the tablets. They violated this thing. Moses goes back into God's presence, and he's interceding on behalf of the people. And God says, fine, you guys can go to the land, but my presence won't go with you. And Moses is fit to be tied, and he just, It's like he sits down and he crosses his arms and he folds his legs. I'm not going to fold my legs because I won't get up at this point in my life. But he's just like pleading with God and he says, well, who cares if we go to the land? If your presence isn't with us, what's the point? It's only your presence that makes this anything. And so God says, okay, my presence will go with you. And that's when Moses says, show me your glory. Listen to the exchange between God and Moses from Exodus 33. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. You cannot see my face. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen until Revelation 22, at the culmination of all things, we will dwell in his presence, and we shall see his face. And they lived happily ever after. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us, for the encouraging words from Revelation 21 and 22, the promise of your presence restored. We're excited about all the details that we see. We want to see this realm remade, sin banished, the opportunity to just be in your presence without fear, to be able to gaze into your eyes, to see you face to face. And to have all this hurt and anguish and pain and the the difficulties of this life be passed away and no more. Thank you for this promise. 
we are eagerly anticipating your return. We are confident because of your word is based on who you are as Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, that your promises will be fulfilled. And one day we will see you face to face and we will be very much aware of your presence. But until that day, as we wait eagerly, patiently, enduring hardship, difficulty, suffering, tribulation, persecution, Lord, strengthen us and encourage us because this time in reality is really short, even though it doesn't feel like it in time and space. And you are giving us the promise that you are coming and you're coming quickly. And so until that day, strengthen, encourage us as a church family to be very much aware of your presence, that we're reminded of it weekly and that we would encourage and comfort one another with these words in Christ's name. Amen.